As we go to prayer, let me read a couple of verses from Psalm 69. In Psalm 69, verses 13 and 14, we read, But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. Deliver me from the mire and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. Father, we know that you understand the situation in which each of us as individuals are living at any given moment far better than we ourselves can possibly understand that situation. Knowing that, Father, I pray that you will teach us to pray our prayer, knowing that you will deliver us and that you will help us. And Father, that you will teach us what it is to walk faithfully with you. And Lord, I, I ask you to be present here this morning, even as you've promised in your word that you would do, to instruct us from your word, to encourage us in our fellowship and faith, and to make us better prepared for the calling that is upon each of our lives as we go forth from here this day and each day, not knowing, of course, what tomorrow may hold, but knowing, Father, that as we walk with you, you will accomplish your purpose through us because that is your desire. And Lord, I pray you'll help us, you will, you will make us into willing tools in your hands in submission to your Holy Spirit. Lord, bless our study this hour. Bless as the word is proclaimed uh, during this next hour throughout our Sunday school and in the service. And we'll give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn to 2 Samuel chapter 13, reading at verse 37, the last three verses of the chapter. Now Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom had fled and gone to Geshur and was there three years. And the heart of David longed to go out to Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon since he was dead. Two years after the tragedy that we read about in the first part of the chapter, this 13th chapter of 2 Samuel is one of those chapters that uh, many people like to skip as they read through because of all the horrible things that are recorded there. But two years after Amnon had raped his half-sister Tamar, further tra tragedy strikes the household of David. You remember that David had done nothing concerning Amnon. The scripture indicates he had not even said a word to Amnon about what he had done to David's daughter for his incest, for his degradation of a royal princess. And so Tamar's full-blood brother, Absalom, decides it's up to him to take matters into his own hand. And so you remember, two weeks ago we studied uh, this passage in the second half of the 13th chapter. He decided to have a sheep shearing festival at Baal Hazor, which was about 15 miles north of Jerusalem. He decided to have this festival because he had an ulterior motive in it. He could have had the sheep shearing without any festival, but typically sheep shearing was a time of festivity in Israel. <coughs> because it's the time when you're, 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 you're harvesting your crops, so to speak, and you're, you're going to get your cash, and obviously you, you share the joy of that with others. That's something that in our society today, where we do not live as communally as people have in the past or did in the society in which we live, where, in which they live, 
uh, in which things like that don't often happen. I mean, you know, if I get a raise, I don't call in all my family and friends and have a big party over a raise I got. I'd probably spend the whole raise having it if I did. So uh, anyway, uh, in, in this society, though, when, when it's harvest time, that's, that's, that's festival time. And so he used this as an opportunity to carry out his vengeance on his half-brother Amnon. He convinced David to let all the sons of David come to the sheep-sharing festival. Now, Baal Hatzor, being 15 miles from Jerusalem, got the sons out of the protection of the royal palace of Jerusalem. The guards weren't there, the walls weren't there, and, and so often this little village, today there's not even a village there, it's just a tell, a little archaeological site. Once he got them there, then he could do what he wanted to do. And of course, part of partying was drinking wine. And he plied his brother Amnon, <clears throat> all of his brothers, of course, but particularly Amnon. Be sure Amnon has plenty to drink all the time. And Amnon, who certainly had to be a bit suspicious at first, uh, eventually got quite lighthearted as he kept tipping and tipping and tipping. And, and pretty soon he was in a condition where he, could, where he could no longer defend himself. And that's when Absalom ordered his servants to assassinate Amnon. The other brothers, although they were probably a little bit uh, out of the ordinary in, in their uh, mental facilities at the moment, saw what was happen, happening and knew that it wasn't something one to be a part of, so they fled like crazy. And so the other brothers, <clears throat> there would have probably been 17 or 16, 16 or 17 of them, fled post-haste back to Jerusalem. Absalom, fearing the wrath of his father or vengeance of his half-brothers, fled to his grandfather in Maaca, and the scripture tells us he would be there three years in exile. What is interesting is that there is no place in scripture that indicates that Absalom was a man of God. That being true, I think it's, it's uh, safe for us to say that the assassination of Amnon was not the will of God. God did not inspire Absalom to slay Amnon. In fact, short of the law, being fulfilled by God-ordained authority, which in this case is the king. David was the God-ordained authority over Israel. Short of the law being fulfilled through that individual, God proclaims that he alone has the right of vengeance. For example, in the Song of Moses, which is recorded in the 12th chapter of Deuteronomy, sorry, it's 32nd chapter of Deuteronomy, Moses says this, of the Lord, Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. The message is repeated in the New Testament, and most of us usually quote it from there. In Romans chapter 12, verse 19, we read, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, of course, for most of us, the whole idea is God takes too long. <laughs> you know, why doesn't God move sooner? Why does he give so much time? But you know, if we turn that inward upon ourselves and think about when the last time was that we offended God in a serious way, do we want God to react to that instantaneously? Knock us flat down, take us out of this life? No, we want mercy from God. 
And so we have to look at it in that sense as well. Their foot will slip one day. Calamity will come upon them one day. God has ordained, God has promised that it would be so. And so it's up to us to just simply trust. In fact, the scriptures, Jesus said, pray for your enemies. Now that's turning it completely on its tail. Could you imagine Absalom getting down and praying for Amnon? Well, it wasn't in his nature. He wasn't a servant of God. And as a result, he took vengeance on his half-brother. But whatever was David's responsibility here, to whatever degree he failed to perform justice on behalf of his, his daughter Tamar and against his son Amnon, Absalom did not have a right to do what he did. He was a self-righteous, rebellious individual. And we're going to see how rebellious as we move through the 14th chapter. And he would pay a terrible price for this. Unfortunately, so would David. Both will pay a terrible price for their rebelliousness and self-righteousness and failure to do the will of God. It doesn't show up right away often, but when we fail to do what God has said for us to do, we pay a price. Maybe not today, but certainly tomorrow. Dr. Lutzer, this morning, if you were listening to him, was talking about Eve in the garden. And he was emphasizing the fact that Eve was looking at the fruit, and the fruit appealed to her, and she wanted it now. The future was not in her mind. She wasn't thinking of the future or the days ahead or the time ahead. She was thinking of this very moment. And, and that's what causes most of us to fail. We look at what we're going to gain for the moment, regardless of what the future will show. What will eternity produce? The question he asked, which I think is very significant, before we do something, ask ourselves, 100 years from now, what will we wish our decision will have been? 100 years from now, all of us will be in eternity. What will we wish our decision has was at this moment? Will we look back and say, oh, if we had only. Well, that will be, of course, the case for Absalom, be the case for David, and it definitely was the case for Eve and, Ad, and uh, Adam as well. Unfortunately, in all of this, David would continue to suffer devastation within his family, not only because of the calamitous events involving Bathsheba and Uriah. Those were terrible. But David added to his problem by his failure. It's, it seems obvious to us from reading the life of his children, his failure to heed the Shema. Most of you are familiar with the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy. We've looked at it before, but I want to go back there for a moment this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 6, reading verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them dil diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. 
You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is called the Shema from the first word. The first word is here. In Hebrew, Shema. Here. David did not practice this with his own sons. We can assume that because there is no statement anywhere indicating that he taught his sons, and there is plenty of evidence to indicate that his sons were rebellious young men, most of them anyway, or many of them. Did David diligently teach his sons? Did he, did he sit them down and, and teach them, and did he have them binded on their hands and on their foreheads and on the doorway? We have no evidence that he did so. Did he teach them to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their might? Did they learn to, did they learn to obey the law of God? Well, if we look at Amnon and we look at Absalom and we look at Adonijah, three that we have considerable information on, the answer is no. At least if he did, it didn't take. No, I realize, and, and all of us, I think, can attest to the fact that you can be a very, very good parent, and yet your child can go his own way. How many times have we all commented or noticed that out of one brood, uh, Gwen was even talking this morning about this, how, how is it out of one brood you can have a Cain and you can have an Abel, you know, in the same brood? Well, it could be because the parents, the father especially, didn't teach the children, but it also can be you did, and the, the child simply went his or her own way. Because uh, everyone has a right to choose before God which way they go, and you cannot force them to go a particular way. They're not automatons. But the evidence seems to indicate that David made no effort to do this. In fact, it seems that he had very little contact with his kids. Because they came from multiple wives. It wasn't a happy little home, you know, with little queenie here and little kitties over there. I mean, it was like he had all these queenies. <laughs> he had all these wives, and they all had their separate place. And we've talked about this before, how whenever you have a harem kind of situation, you have all this infighting and this bickering and this uh, terrible things that happen. And, and, and you know, so what, what, and, you know, David had 19 sons, at least, that we know of that are named exclusive of the sons that he had by the concubines, which are not named or even numbered. And Tamar could not have been his only daughter, even if she's the only one mentioned. But, you know, 19 sons and one girl, that's not the average. You know. <laughs> the average is, of course, uh, almost 50-50, just slightly more than 50% worldwide, nationwide, Slightly more than 50% of the babies born are male. Slightly less than 50% of the babies born are girls. Worldwide, this is a, it's built in, genetically. And we can talk about all the reasons for that. I think it's God-ordained. But nevertheless, 19 to 1, pretty hard. I, I do know of a fella who was a professor I sat under once. He had seven daughters, and he said we gave up at that point on having a son. You know, we have four daughters, but nevertheless, I think he had lots of other daughters as well. They just aren't mentioned. But bringing it down to you and to me, as parents, as grandparents, the only hope for our children and the only hope for our grandchildren is our prayers, our example, our teaching of God's truth. If you and I become too occupied, as David obviously was, we lose that golden moment to build into the lives of our children, our grandchildren, the image of Christ. 
And that is our primary responsibility. What in the world else do we have here that is more important? What can be more important than training up a child in the way that he should go that when he is old he will not depart from it? No accomplishment in this life is of greater value. Yes, it's important for us to develop our talents and to use our skills for the good of mankind, the kingdom of God, but that significance pales if the children do not receive the proper training at the hands of the parents. That is the greater good. That is the ultimate fulfillment of the Shema. God proclaimed that and gave it as a law to his people, foundational law. You will teach your kids. That's your primary purpose in this life. Everything else is fine and dandy. It's the, it's the frosting on the top. But this is the foundation. And David apparently failed in this matter. And yet, did God reject him? No. God considered him to be the apple of his eye, you know. God is a very gracious parent. This is for sure. Well, if we move on to the 14th chapter of 2 Samuel as we speed through this book, we're going to be looking at chapters 14 through 18 in the next few Sundays, which deal with Absalom's rebellion. I don't know how many of you have ever had a rebellious child. Most of us as parents, if we had very many kids, probably had at least one rebellious child. Uh, David will have several of them, as we've already noted. David's nephew, Joab, is going to play a major role in what happens in these next few chapters. David was the, I mean, Joab was David's nephew. He was the commander of the armies of Israel. And he will be a, a, a very significant catalyst. He's the guy who makes things happen. He was well suited to his position because Joab was courageous. Joab was brilliant. Joab was decisive. And Joab was capable of well-executed subterfuge. What's interesting is when you look through the scripture and you look at the life of Joab and contrast it with the life of David, this contrast is stark. Even though both were military men and, and, and they're cousins, well, one's a nephew, nephew and uncle, we discover there is a big difference between them. David was totally committed to God. Yes, he made some horrendous mistakes, I call them, you know, he failed horrendously on more than one occasion, but he nevertheless was committed to God. But there is little evidence that Joab was ever anything other than a nominal believer. Oh yeah, he does quote God in a couple of instances, but it's very, very obvious that whereas David was a man of compassion, Joab was a man of pragmatism. What works, let's do it, regardless of the consequences. The only good thing, or I shouldn't say the only, but one of the good things that comes out of Joab's life is that he was committed to David. He was loyal to David. Not slavishly, but he was loyal to David. So as we, as we go to the 14th chapter of uh, 2 Samuel, we find the account of Joab hatching up a scheme by which he hopes to bring about reconciliation between David and Absalom, his son, who is in exile in Maaka. What are his motives? Well, his motives are not clear. We don't exactly know why, but it seems that his motives are primarily that David is older than Joab. David will probably die before Joab. So Joab is kind of preparing the future. 
Absalom is the heir apparent to the throne. He is the crown prince, but he's in exile. And, and so he wants to ingratiate himself with Absalom so that when Absalom is on the throne, he'll look back and say, aha, Joab did this for me. I will give him honor. I think that was the primary motivation in what Joab did. So let's read the first three verses of chapter 14 of 2 Samuel. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart was inclined towards Absalom. So Joab sent to Tekoa and brought a wise woman from there and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments now and do not anoint yourself with oil, but like a woman who has been mourning for the dead many days. Then go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Let's stop there just for a moment. I, I think David has been pining for his son Absalom. The scripture tells us at the end of uh, chapter 13 that David's heart longed to go out to Absalom, but he was comforted concerning Amnon because there was nothing he'd do at Amnon. Amnon was dead. And in, I think in the back of his <clears throat> mind, David knew De Amnon got what was coming to him anyway. So he was comforted concerning that son. But Absalom, you know, I can't prove this, but I have a feeling that Absalom in some ways was, was almost like David's uh, image. David, we, we glean from Scripture that David was apparently a very handsome man. And we know, uh, because this chapter tells us, that Absalom was an extremely handsome man who was honored for his physical attributes by the people. And so David was probably pining for his son, and, and it may have been affecting his ability to rule. We don't know. Now, as we've seen, Amnon had been, Amnon was David's oldest son. He had been the heir to the throne. He's dead. Kiliab, or Daniel, as he's called in different parts, is never mentioned again in Scripture other than as a list of the sons, as second son of David. And, and so it must be assumed, because he's never named here, that he probably has died by now. So that makes Absalom now next in line to the throne, but he is in Maacah, and he is not in Jerusalem. And I think Joab may have feared disorder if David died, that there would be civil unrest if David does not have a clear lineage set out, a clear line of ascent to the throne uh, set out. Exile implies disfavor. If you're in exile, you're in disfavor. Centuries ago in Athens, there was a leader in Athens whose name was Simon. And he had led Athens for nearly 20 years. But he had made the mistake of aiding Sparta. Now, if you know anything about ancient Athens, ancient Athens and ancient Sparta were like Cain and Abel. They hated each other. And he had sent some help to Sparta. So a, a, a man in uh, Athens by the name of Pericles uh, got together the citizens and said we ought to hold a uh, what we would call a recall election <laughs> here in our society and see if we can get Simon kicked out of office because he has aided our enemy Sparta in putting down a civil insurrection within their own territory. In those days what they did was the citizens who could vote were given a piece of a pot, a broken piece of pottery, a shard. 
and they were to write the name on this piece of pottery of, of a person that they thought ought to be exiled out of the land. This little piece of pottery is called an ostrica. And if the names were written on there, and, and if a person's name showed up enough times, that person was ostracized. And the person was kicked out of the land, and he was to stay in exile for 10 years. He could not return. That implied disfavor. There was something that people did not like about this person, and so he was exiled. So Absalom is in exile. Now it's self-imposed. He is the one who fled to Maacah. But David, for three years, has not recalled him. So that implies disfavor. That implies that David has agreed with the self-imposed exile and feels that Absalom should not return. But Joab was afraid of factions. If, if David dies and there's no clear line of, of who's to be the next one to the throne, there's going to be factions in, in the land and there's going to be squabbling. There might even be civil war. And so he wanted to make it clear who the next person would be. And in Absalom's, uh, I mean, in Joab's mind, Absalom was by far the best person. He was handsome. He was, he was, you know, had a good personality. He had wreaked vengeance on his brother and probably in Joab's mind righteously because that's how Joab functioned too. I mean, Joab was a lot like Absalom. Not that he was handsome. We have no place saying that he was. Might have been a mud fence for all we know, but... So what he does is he comes up with a complex ruse here in an attempt to solve the problem. He apparently knew, knew this woman. How he knew this woman, the scripture does not say. But he apparently had some connections and he knew that there was a woman down there in Tekoa who had some what we would call acting skills, I guess. And someone who would be willing, undoubtedly for some financial consideration, <laughs> to help Joab influence David. Now, Tekoa is about 12 miles south of Jerusalem. Uh, Tekoa is, is a pretty much of an unknown place if it hadn't been for the fact that the prophet Amos came from there. And uh, he's the one who will make the little town, town famous. She was called wise, probably because she was the kind of person who understood what you wanted and knew exactly how to make it happen. She knew how to play the role convincingly. So let's look at what happens. Verse 4, now the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king. She fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king! And the king said to her, What is your trouble? And she answered, Truly, I am a widow, for my husband is dead. And your maidservant had two sons, but the two of them struggled together in the field. And there was no one to separate them, so the one struck the other and killed him. Now behold, the whole family has risen up against your maidservant, they say, Hand over the one who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed, and destroy the heir also. Thus they will extinguish my coal which is left, so as to leave my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, O my lord, the king, the iniquity is on me in my father's house, but the king and his throne are guiltless. So the king said, Whoever speaks to you, bring him to me, and he will not touch you anymore. Then she said, Please let the king remember the Lord your God, so that the avenger of blood may not continue to destroy, lest they destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your maidservant speak a word to my lord the king. And he said, Speak. 
And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in speaking this word, the king is as one who is guilty, in that the king does not bring back his banished one. For we shall surely die and are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one may not be cast out from him. Now the reason I have come to speak this word to my Lord the king is because the people have made me afraid. So your maidservant said, Let me now speak to the king. Perhaps the king will perform the request of his maidservant. For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy both me and my son from the inheritance of God. Then let your maid, then your maidservant said, Please let the word of my lord the king be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is the lord, my lord the king, to discern good and evil. May the Lord your God be with you. Well, from that passage, we can well see that she would have passed her screen test and uh, made it into Hollywood, had there been a Hollywood in those days. She obviously could do a very good job. David is taken in by this hypothetical story just as he was by the story that Nathan the prophet gave to him many, many years before. There was no Supreme Court in Israel in those days. And so the king became the final arbiter in matters of law and equity. If there was an appeal, the appeal was to the king, just as it was in the days of Rome when Paul said, I appeal to Caesar. That was the highest appeal that could be made in that day. And so it was in Israel at this time. I think David set aside certain days each month to hold court and to have appeals come to him to deal with them. We know this became the pattern because we know Solomon in his famous uh, decision that he made uh, concerning the, the baby that was alive and the baby that was dead and how to deal with that gave us an example of how this appeal worked. Before David, with the story that Joab had given her to, to, to relate. I mean, Joab had coached her. He coached her well. And uh, she gave this story dramatically. She comes before the king and she throws herself on the ground in front of him, prostrate, and says, help, O king. Well, who wouldn't respond? You know, even Attila the Hun would probably respond to that kind of an appeal. And David was far from Attila the Hun. This whole account is very reminiscent of Nathan's indictment of David many years before. When, when Nathan had told the story and then said, you are the man, you are the man. The main difference is that Nathan was clearly guided by the Lord, and there is absolutely no evidence and no mention of anything have God having anything to do with Joab, hatching up this scheme and coaching this woman and, and bringing this about. In fact, knowing what's going to come next, we could say it would have been far better if Absalom had stayed in Maacah and never returned to Jerusalem. The woman adeptly drew the parallel between her supposed situation and that of David's two sons, Amnon and Absalom. As she implied, the law was maintained, what, what, the law is, made, is, is promulgated to maintain order in society, but sometimes 
Mercy must supersede the law. Although she compared her situation to David's, it should be noted that, unlike her hypothetical story, Absalom was not David's only remaining son. In her case, she had two boys, one killed the other, and now they were going to kill the one that had done the murdering. David had at least uh, 16 other sons. And there's another big difference. According to her story, the two were out in the field and they got to bickering each other and the one killed the other. But in Absalom's case, it was two years of meditating and premeditating and thinking how he was going to get revenge on Amnon. This was a long planned out assassination. However, as in the case of Bathsheba, David had a tendency to self-incriminate. If you look back at verses 10 and 11, so he said after she had uh, talked about her situation and uh, uh, saying that it, it wasn't the king's fault or anything, he says, whoever speaks to you, bring him to me and he shall not touch you anymore. And then she said, please let the king remember the Lord your God so that the avenger of blood may not continue to destroy lest he destroy my son. And he said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. You know, here he is defending a, a child, a, a son. He, he doesn't even know. He's going by her word only. And, and yet he is holding his own son in, in a similar situation and not showing him any mercy. This, this is an act of self-incrimination on the part of David. Well, it's going to be clear to the woman that David's catching on. David's catching on that she's just telling a story here and uh, that she's not there to receive justice for herself, but she's actually there to point the finger at David. And so she does something pretty wise here. I guess that's why she was a wise woman from Tekoa. But in verse 17, we, we read, Then your maidservant said, Please let the word of, the Lord, of my Lord the king be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is my Lord the king, to discern good and evil. I mean, she butters him up one side and butters him down the other side. She flatters him so that when he finally catches on, he's not going to be so mad at her that he will take vengeance on her. Well, that brings us to verse 18, and we don't have time to uh, pursue it further, but we're going to see that uh, what David does next is exactly what Joab wants him to do. And as I said before, it probably was not the right thing to do, at least the way it plays out in the remaining chapters 14 through 18. 